and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27, or you can look on with someone who has a Bible near you. Psalm 27. We're going to focus on verses 11 through 14 this evening, finishing up the psalm. The whole psalm, as I've said before, is about who God is for us in the midst of our enemies. We're going to read the whole psalm in just a moment as we prepare to look at the ending, but that's essentially what it's about, who God is, who the Lord is for us in the midst of our enemies, which for us today are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our enemies. And God is our light and our salvation and our stronghold in the midst of those enemies. He, he hides us and conceals us and lifts us on high. He hears us and is gracious to us and answers us. I'm just going through the psalm here. And we seek his face. And he never forsakes us as his children. And this evening, in the last part of the psalm, we'll see David doing two things in addition to all those others that we've already seen. We'll see him asking the Lord to shepherd him in the midst of his enemies and also encouraging his fellow Israelites to wait for the Lord. That's what we can do as well as the people of God today. We can ask the Lord to shepherd us as we face our enemies and we can encourage each other to wait for the Lord. We'll learn more about what that looks like as we dig into these verses this evening. But let's look to the Lord in prayer now together first and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd through Christ who is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray, Jesus, that you would teach us and lead us and protect us and help us to understand more of what it means to wait for you and how to encourage each other to wait for you. We pray in your name, amen. amen. Psalm 27, let me read the whole psalm. And again, our focus is gonna be on verses 11 through 14. This is God's word through David. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. 
I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You can see in your sermon notes there, we're gonna look first at David's request in verses 11 and 12, which is basically, shepherd me, Lord. And then we'll look at his encouragement to his fellow Israelites to wait for the Lord. He asks the Lord to do three things, really, in verses 11 and 12. He says, teach me, at the beginning of verse 11, then lead me, in the second half of that verse, and then essentially protect me, in verse 12. And let's consider each of those and see what we can glean from them. First, again, he says, teach me your way, O Lord. This is a pretty common prayer in the Psalms. Psalm 25, verse four would be another example. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. And when David says, teach me your way, O Lord, He's really asking the Lord to teach him his word, his law, and to teach him also how to apply his word and his law to his life so that the Lord's way becomes David's way more and more. And this, of course, is what we can pray too. We can also ask the Lord to teach us his way. He has revealed his way in his word. In Holy Scripture, in the 66 books of the Bible that you may have in your lap right now in front of you. And none of us know the Bible perfectly and completely, of course. The Bible is an ocean that has no bottom, and we can always go deeper. And so it's good for us to ask the Lord to teach us his way, to teach us his word. But it's also good for us to ask the Lord to help us to apply his word to our lives. Because it's one thing to know the Bible, but it's another thing to apply the Bible to your life, to apply what you know to the various situations that you face in your life, and to apply it rightly, and to apply it wisely, and with discernment, and with understanding, and to apply it thoughtfully and consistently. And in order to do that, we need the Lord to teach us, teach me your way, O Lord. We want our way to be the Lord's way, don't we? We want the path that we walk to be the path of the Lord, not the path of the world that is so often opened to us. 
We don't want to go our own way. We want to learn to go his way. And for that, we need him to continually teach us. And that is actually one of the offices that Christ executes on our behalf. He executes the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And kids, some of you will remember, no doubt, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer about Christ executing the office of a prophet. If you remember that question, it it asks, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So the word of God written comes to us ultimately through the word of God incarnate through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our prophet who teaches us the way of the Lord. Remember what the father said to Peter and James and John at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Or remember how Mary was commended for sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. Christ is the one who teaches us his way by his word and spirit. And it's to him and his word that we should listen. We shouldn't listen to the lies of the world. We shouldn't say, teach me your way, O world. We should say, rather, teach me your way, O Lord, and listen to the truth of his word. Teach me your way, O Christ, our prophet, the beloved son of the Father. So when we ask the Lord to teach us his way, we're really asking the good shepherd to feed us who are his sheep. We're asking him to teach us his word and to teach us how to apply his word to our daily lives so that his way becomes our way more and more. And he is gracious and faithful to answer our request. Secondly, David asks the Lord in the second half of verse 11 to lead him. Teach me your way, now lead me. He says, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. And what does he mean when he says that? When he says, lead me on a level path, he's not asking the Lord to just make his life comfortable. As if he said, lead me on the easiest path possible, the most comfortable path possible. No, he's asking the Lord to lead him on a level path because of his enemies so that he doesn't stumble and fall before those enemies. So this would be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read the story, when he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You may remember that part. And on the right side, there was this deep ditch. And on the left side, there was a dangerous quagmire, in the language that Bunyan uses. And the path down the middle was very narrow. And there were dangers and there were enemies foes on both sides of the way. And Christian was afraid that he would fall on one side or the other. But the Lord was faithful to lead him safely through down that 
narrow path. That's kind of what David's getting at when he asks the Lord to lead him on a level path because of his enemies. Again, it's not lead me on an easy path, but lead me on a level path, a secure path because I'm surrounded by enemies and I don't want to fall. Oftentimes we prefer to take the easy path in life, don't we? And our desires and our prayers can tend to be directed toward that at times. But what we need is not for the Lord to lead us on an easy path, but to lead us on the right path. And to lead us on a level and secure path that will lead us safely through all those enemies that surround us every day. Like in Psalm 23 where David says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we shouldn't pray, Lord, please make my life easy today. We should pray, Lord, sanctify me today. Lead me into what will bring you the most glory and me the most good in Christ. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. We need the Lord to lead us on a level path because of our enemies. We need him to lead us safely through that valley along the narrow way because there are enemies on every side of us. And we can't go it alone. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't lean on our own understanding. We need him to lead us and guide us. And he is a strong and reliable and trustworthy leader and guide of his people. So as our shepherd, he teaches us and he leads us. And thirdly, he protects us. That's what David asks him to do in verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. Again, our adversaries today are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. What is the will of the world? The will of the world is that we would join them in their worldliness, in their rebellion against God. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 5, 3 through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The will of the world is that we would join them in their worldliness. What is the will of the flesh? That we would gratify its desires. The will of the flesh is that we would gratify its desires. Galatians 5 speaks about this, verses 16 through 21. Listen, but I say, walk by the Spirit, 
then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The will of the flesh is that we would gratify its desires. What about the devil? The world, the flesh, and the devil. What is the will of the devil with regard to us? It's to devour us and destroy us. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan seeks to devour the people of God. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The will of the devil is to devour and destroy us. The will of the world is that we would join them in their worldliness. The will of the flesh is that we would gratify its desires. And the will of the devil is to devour and destroy us. No wonder we need the Lord to protect us. No wonder we need his protection. We're like Bilbo and Gandalf and the 13 dwarves in The Hobbit stuck up in those trees at the edge of the cliff with wolves and wargs and goblins down below and fire starting all around. And we need the eagles to come and rescue us. And that's what the Lord does. He rescues us. He carries us on eagles' wings as we sing together. He protects us from the will of our adversaries. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. And ultimately, the reason God will not give us up to the will of our adversaries is because he gave up his son to the will of his adversaries. False witnesses rose against Jesus, didn't they? After he was arrested, when he stood before Caiaphas and the council, they sought false testimony against him, and it says that many false witnesses came forward. And his adversaries breathed out violence against him. The soldiers mocked him, as did the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And the robbers reviled him. And the people who passed by derided him. The father did not protect his son from his enemies so that he could protect us from ours. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our shepherd graciously teaches us and leads us and protects us. That's what David asks of the Lord and that's what we can ask of the Lord too. 
And because of what Christ has done for us, we can know that our request will be answered. Well, David turns from addressing God to addressing the people of God here at the end of the psalm. And he encourages his fellow Israelites in the remaining verses to wait for the Lord. Let's look at that now under our second main point, wait for the Lord. And here we'll note two things. First, what David says about looking upon the goodness of the Lord. And then we'll see what he says directly about waiting for the Lord. He says in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What a great verse. To look upon the goodness of the Lord means not just to see it, but also to savor it. Like when you see a beautiful sunset, you you look upon that sunset, but you also love it, right? You enjoy it. To experience the goodness of the Lord is what he's talking about. To enjoy it, to exult in it, to taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalm says. We are able to look upon his goodness in creation, aren't we? When we see the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens that declare his glory, when we go apple picking, then we see all those apples. Kids, I'm sure you've seen that before. Just apples and apples and apples as far as the eye can see. And you go up to a tree and you, you pick just the right apple. You pluck that apple off the tree and you take your first bite and you taste goodness. You taste the goodness of God given to you in that apple. That's the goodness of the Lord that he has given to us so bountifully. When we see other people, fellow image bearers, and we talk to them and we listen to them and we marvel at the goodness of God in making people. We also look upon his goodness in redemption as well as creation. When we think about election and the incarnation and the active and passive obedience of Jesus for us and regeneration and effectual calling and faith and repentance and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, when we think about all of these things, when we think about the means of grace that he's given us that we are, we are drinking in even now in worship, singing and prayer and the reading and preaching of the word and the sacraments, when we think about the union and the communion we have with the triune God through Christ by faith, we see his goodness. We look upon the goodness of the Lord. And the only way we're able to see his goodness in creation and in redemption is because he's, he's given us glasses to be able to see his goodness. Otherwise, we would just see stars and apples and a bunch of doctrines and church traditions. But because he's given us glasses, we can see his goodness. Kind of like those 3D glasses that help you see things in 3D that you couldn't see without them on. God has opened our eyes so that we can look upon his goodness and we can delight in his goodness. And notice he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
in the land of the living. Certainly this would include the land of the currently living, but I think it also points ahead to the land of the permanently living. And the wording kind of points us in that direction, doesn't it? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So we can look upon the goodness of the Lord in this life, to be sure, in all the ways that I just mentioned, but how much more will we be able to look upon his goodness in the life to come? Now in part, then in full. Now is a foretaste. Now is an appetizer. Then will be the full meal, the banquet. And based on the promises of God, we can say with David, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, in one sense, we are living in the land of the dying. We're living in the shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis called it. But we believe, based on the promise of God, that we shall one day look upon his goodness in another land, in the land of the living, the land where there's no death, where we will experience eternal life on the new earth. And keeping that destination in view helps us on the journey, especially when it's hard. I think that's probably why David then says what he says in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord is is a very rich concept in the Bible. It means basically to trust in him and to wait on his timing to trust in the Lord and to wait on his timing, as opposed to getting impatient and trusting in ourselves and going ahead and doing things in our own way and according to our own timetable, like Abraham and Sarah with Hagar. To wait for the Lord is to trust in him and to wait on his timing. It's to rely on him and to submit to him and to be ready to obey him like a faithful dog who sits next to his master and looks up at him awaiting his command. And David encourages his fellow Israelites to wait for the Lord. Remember, he's not addressing God directly, he's addressing the people of God now at the end of the psalm. To be strong, to let your heart take courage, he's encouraging them calls to mind the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And earlier in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or think of the words of Deuteronomy 31, verse six. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, 
or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Wait for the Lord, David says. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We are weak in ourselves. But we can be strong in the Lord. We are fearful in ourselves. But we can let our heart take courage. Courage, dear heart. As Aslan said to Lucy. And the fact that David said this to his fellow Israelites reminds us, of course, that we can say this to each other. We should say this to each other. This is one of the ways we can help each other along on the journey. It's one of the ways we can nurture one another's growth in Christ, like we say in our mission statement, that we nurture growth in Christ in ourselves and in each other. We can encourage each other and remind each other to be strong in the Lord and to let our heart take courage and to wait for the Lord. We can do that, of course, in conversation with each other. We can do that in in a text or an email or a card. We can pray this for each other and ask the Lord to give us the grace to do this, to be strong in him to let our heart take courage, draw courage from him and to wait for him and for his perfect timing and wise provision. Notice that wait for the Lord is repeated not just as a poetical flourish. It's being emphasized because we need to have it reinforced Back to that faithful dog I mentioned a minute ago. I'm not sure why dogs are coming up so much in my two sermons today, but especially when your your dog was being trained, you, you might have told him to wait, but then as you back away from the dog, you might have to tell him to wait again and wait, wait as you're backing away. And then finally you say, okay, come, because he needs to be reminded, otherwise he'll forget. Or his desire for the treat you have in your hand will override his desire to obey your command. There's some similarity there with us. We need the command to wait to be repeated again and again. God is merciful, God is gracious to do so. And it seems that another aspect of this rich concept of waiting for the Lord is waiting for his return. We'll close with this. Especially when we read verse 14 in light of verse 13. When we read, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and then wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that's really what our Savior says to us, isn't it? Wait for me. In this life, wait for me. Wait for my help. Wait for my deliverance. Wait on my perfect timing for all things in your life. Wait for my deliverance in the midst of your enemies that are facing you. 
Look to me to teach you and to lead you and to protect you. Look to me for strength and for courage in the midst of those enemies. And also, wait for my return when I will usher you into the life to come. To wait on the Lord is to wait for Christ. To look to Christ in this life for the shepherding care we need and to look for his return and the joy of the life to come. We can look upon his goodness now in part and we will look upon his goodness then in full. And in the meantime, let's take to heart what we see in this passage. Let's be strong in the Lord. Let's let our hearts take courage and draw courage from him. The courage of Christ in us. And let's wait for the Lord. For his shepherding care now and for his return. And when he returns, we shall look upon his goodness in the land of the living forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would teach us and lead us and protect us from our enemies. And we pray that you would help us to be strong in you and to take courage from you. And we pray that you would help us to wait for you and to believe and look forward to the day when we will look upon your goodness in the land of the living for all eternity. We pray in your name, amen. Let's take just a minute now to think about what we've heard, to pray in light of what we've heard from God's word, and then we'll sing together.